Good morning and welcome. I'm really glad that we got a chance to finish this up. I was not feeling good about doing the first three and getting snowed out for the fourth one. So just pretend, all right, we're back in February. Uh, there's no green grass, there are no flowers, there's no sunshine yet. It's snowing outside, but we managed to get here and we're doing our fourth week in this Bible game change class, all right? That's where I want your mind. And I was thinking, you know, it's been a while, actually, since that class. So I need to spend some time at the beginning just getting our heads back into where we were after the first three weeks. So, which just means I'm going to have to talk all that much faster when I get to today's class, okay? So get ready. And really, I, people haven't, you know, they, it's hard for people to feel like they can interrupt me. But if, if at any point you say, whoa, 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 I have a question about that, just put your hand up and interrupt me. Because... I tend to be like a steamroller. I just get going and there's a lot of momentum. So just stop me if you have a question about something or want to ask a question, comment, anything like that. Just let me know. So this class is called Bible Game Change. And it's, it's asking the two fundamental questions. What is the Bible? Right? What is it actually? I mean, we have adjectives for it that describe how great it is. But what is it? So... Like factually, what, what is the Bible? And then, once we've answered that question, what are we supposed to do with it? Those are the two big things. And I think what I've been making the case during this class is that the modern Bible has given us a specific set of answers to those two questions. The modern Bible, remember the journey I said was the Bible started as an organic set of, of first oral teaching, got written down, they were whole books, they were, they were in a natural form, they had their own kind of literary structure, there are certain kinds of writing, wisdom books and stories and song lyrics, apocalyptic literature, gospels, letters, all these things in the modern period, as we started adding things to the Bible, there was this journey of complexification of the Bible in its form, Right? And what I, what I tried to say in the first class is, remember that in God's good creation, the form of something has an awful lot to do with what it's intended to do. In God's world, form and function are meant to work together. So we weren't thinking about this when we, when we added all these things to the Bible. But what actually happened is we changed the form. When you look at a modern Bible... Chapter numbers added in the 13th century, right, over 1,200 years after the Bible was first written. Verse numbers added 300 years later in the 16th century, 1,500 years after those books were written. That changed the form, and especially because the Geneva Bible, 1551, thereabouts, made every single verse a separate paragraph devastating for the form. Suddenly, when you get all those verses set apart as separate statements in two columns of text, you don't see a proverb. You don't see a song lyric. You don't see a letter. You don't see a story. And so we change the Bible into a reference book looking kind of thing. In God's world, the form of something is closely related to what we think we're supposed to do with it. When I see a newspaper in a certain form, electronically or in print, it doesn't matter, I know what to do with that. 
I can jump around to find the articles based on the headlines of what, I, what I'm interested in. A historical romance novel is a different kind of thing. A textbook for how to, to do something, like fix an engine, has a different kind of form. When our brains take in signals all the time about the form of something, and it tells us what we're supposed to do with it. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that in the 500 years since we received this new form of the Bible, a reference book form, remember, this is crucial, it's not, this stuff was not there originally. All this stuff we've added, footnotes, cross-references, section headings, plus the numbers, all this stuff combined to make us think what we're supposed to do is use the Bible like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. So lo and behold, that's what the Bible research shows is actually happening. People have quit reading the Bible, by and large. Now you might say, well, I know some people who still read the Bible. They read the Bible through in a year or something. You need to know that is such a small minority of people in this country and increasingly around the world that it hardly registers statistically. The data is that people have abandoned reading the Bible. I think a huge part of that is because we've given people Bibles that don't look like they're meant to be read. It's the way God expects the world to work. You design something for its use. When we change the design, that's why designers are so important in our world. Um, When we change the design, we change what people thought they were supposed to do. So there's a devastating amount of biblical illiteracy, just abandonment of Bible reading. People think the thing to do with the Bible is to tweet it, right? I just saw the new Christianity Today last year, 43 million Bible tweets, and they have the top 20. Who's the best at tweeting Bible verses? Tim Tebow made the list, John Piper made the list, and some pastors from Asia that I don't know, but they're, they're perpetuating. And I'm like, okay, this leads into the second, the second week. Remember what we said. The thing that we're supposed to do with the Bible by God's design is feast on it. Sharing Bible verses, not saying it's terrible. I'm saying if that's the only part of our diet, that's snacking on the Bible, not feasting. God didn't design the Bible with little bits of individual truth meant to be taken out of context and shared around the world so people don't even know what the whole letter, Philippians 4, 13, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean to the Philippians? Paul was writing to somebody. What was his situation? He was in jail. I mean, do we know any of the context of that? We just think that's a standalone statement of spiritual truth that can be shared outside of the the text that comes before, the text that comes after, and the situation Paul was in, who he was writing to, all that stuff. That's not feasting. God gave us a Bible that was meant to be feasted on, read in, in its entirety, read as whole books. The letter to the Philippians... You can read that whole thing in a few minutes. It's not like it's, you know, it's not like a commitment to get a PhD. Reading the letter to the Philippians is a relatively minor commitment. Isaiah, it's a little bit bigger commitment. Okay, granted. But the point is that the Bible is a collection of these books. They're meant to be feasted on, taken in as a whole, meditated on, thought about, realizing that it's a journey from the original setting It's a different world. We have to think about what does it mean, what did that text mean, first of all, in its own world? And then what does it mean in our world? 
We, we just, I know how this goes. We want to skip that step. We just want to find, that's why I think we're so attracted to Bible verses. Because it's easier to take a Bible verse and apply it directly to me without mediation. I don't have to think about who it was first written to. Because if I have just a verse, it's clear that it can be just God, me, no Paul, no Philippians, nobody's in the middle of that. It's just God and me. That's what Bible verses allow us to do. But God inspired a Bible. The real Bible is embedded in history. God inspired a Bible that is, that is given by certain people to certain audiences. And then we have to say the Bible was not written to us, but the Bible is certainly for us. What we have to do is craft the right path from getting from this ancient book written by ancient people to ancient people. And how in the world does a book like that speak to us today? I think taking Bible verses out of context is our favorite shortcut. It's just so much easier than having to think about, well, what was Paul's situation? What was the situation with the Philippians? What spiritual dangers were they in? What's he addressing? What's he trying to do with the Philippians? Why is he encouraging them this way? Why is he warning them about that? It's easier if I don't have to think about other people and I can just get my verse, get my shot for the day. But if God had wanted us to have that kind of Bible, he could have given us that, but he didn't. He gave us a different kind of Bible. And I think it's honoring to God, and I think it's honoring to the Bible to accept the Bible that he actually inspired. I mean, if we want to be high, high view of the Bible people, if we want to be Bible inspiration people, that this is God's force in the world to help change the world on behalf of the kingdom of God, and the, and the rule of Christ, then we have to say, God knew what he was doing. And he gave us this kind of Bible. So what does it mean? We have to, to start, the whole church I'm talking about, when I say we, I mean all of us. I mean, this is something we're all have been, we, this is what we see practice, this is what everybody and their brother does. We have to start collectively changing what we're doing with the Bible. And, and you know, there's this research piece. Um, I work at, at the Biblica Institute within Biblica. And the research that we look at constantly just tells us the Bible is on this slide downward. People are not reading it. I mean, it burdens me. It should burden all of us. What does it mean to have a world of Christians who don't actually know the Bible? Do we think it's like really incidental to the Christian life? Does it matter that people read it? Or can we do just fine without it? Why did God think it was important to give it to us in the first place? Why is it the kind of book it is? We have to re-engage with the scriptures at a deep level. And I think sometimes it means changing some parts of our lives. We have to be willing to say, you know what? I watch this much TV. I spend this much time on Facebook. It's funny. My wife, she's resisted Facebook for a long time. She's like, I see what you do, and I, you know, and every once in a while she wants to look over my shoulder and see the pictures of the grandkids and this kind of stuff. But she finally dove in, like a few weeks ago. And now she's already saying, I sit down to write a message to my friend or to do something else, and I find I've just lost 45 minutes trolling through updates on somebody's time. I mean, like, she's like, this is what Facebook does to my life. And I'm like, okay, this is what it does. We have these things in our lives that are part of modern living, right? Contemporary living. What does it mean in that kind of life for Christians to carve out a time that says, I'm going to commit to feasting on the Bible as a regular thing? What does that mean? 
That, that means changing something. I mean, Christians don't always go with the cultural flow, right? We say there are some things we just won't do, even if the whole culture, if everybody's doing it. You know, we used to tell, tell our moms when I was a kid, like, oh, everybody's doing this. She's like, we don't necessarily do what everybody does. We have a way of life that's given to us, and this is what we follow. We, we know that in the moral kind of ethical realm. Do we know that in the like, time spent in the Bible realm? We just have to be different from people. If reading has gone out of fashion, we need to be a people of the book still. That's how we were historically known, a people of the book. Are we still going to be people of the book? That means feasting on the Bible, more than snacking. Now, I think snacking is fine. You could make a case that the New Testament like, shares Scripture snacks. When it quotes the First Testament in little pieces, you could say, look, it doesn't quote all. Jesus on the cross doesn't quote all of Psalm 22. He quotes the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what we have to get to the place where, we can, where what we're doing in our community is when we see somebody share a scripture verse on Twitter or a Facebook post or, or whatever, do we know the context? You can, you can bet that when Jesus said those words on the cross, his audience knew that psalm. He didn't have to quote the whole thing because all he's doing is referencing that psalm, which ends, by the way, with a shout of victory. It's amazing. So when he's quoting that opening line about the despair of feeling forsaken by God, that's not the whole thing that he's saying there. Because you know the whole psalm. What if we quoted scripture that way? And what if we said, um, if I don't know the context I don't have the right to quote a verse. I'm not going to post a verse unless I know the context. Because that's just kind of a basic, like doing justice to it kind of thing. Honoring it. And so that's, I think, where I'd like to see the Christian community get. Like dispensing with this reference book form so that people will quit using it only like a reference book to look up something and be done versus reading it at length, slowly, in depth, and then feasting on this new form regularly. So like regularly we should be working through whole books because books, not verses, are the central intentional units of the Bible. That's what God inspired. When, when the ancients used the word scriptures, like we say, oh, I shared a scripture with them. A scripture, the way the church originally used the firm, meant a book. It was one of the books in the Bible. That's what a scripture was. It wasn't a verse. So if we, had, if we adapted this practice of feasting on the Bible regularly, then we would become, I submit, a completely different kind of Christian community. Because we would be so immersed in Scripture, we, we would just come to know it. It would be in our bones. So then, the third week. So the first week we talked about the form. Second week we talked about feasting. Third week we talked about story. By the way, on the second week, on feasting part, when we feast on whole books, we will discover things that are completely unknown to the reference book Bible. We will discover the natural things, the natural structures that the biblical authors were using that have real spiritual benefit. Matthew's, I think I mentioned this example in the class, Matthew's five books. Right? There's actually, there's not 28 natural chapters to Matthew's gospel. There's five books. Now, why would Matthew do that? Torah? five books of Moses. He's presenting Jesus as a new Moses. Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses and delivers a new law, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is fulfilling the story of the Jews. Matthew is the Gospel written most directly to the Jews of that time to show Jesus as the fulfillment of their story. More than anybody, he quotes from the First Testament and he uses this phrase so that it might be fulfilled. So Matthew reinforces his whole message about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish story by structuring his whole book into five sections. How do we know this? The way the ancients typically showed a structure of a book, by repeating a phrase. People didn't have physical copies of the book. This was all going to be, it was going to be something they heard. There might be one copy in an early Christian community of the Gospel of Matthew, and nobody else in the whole congregation would have a copy. They would hear it read, and they would read big, long sections of it at a time. They would hear when a phrase was repeated that had been used before. So when, Mo, when Matthew five times uses the phrase, after Jesus had finished saying these things, five times he gathers his disciples together and he summarizes what he's been doing in his action and he gives them a collection of teaching. And Matthew summarizes that each time with the same words. Those are Matthew's natural five sections. And when we see that, it helps reinforce his message that this is the, this is the Torah of God's new people the people in Jesus. And so I could go book after book through the Bible and show you how the natural structures reinforce deep spiritual messages. They're not just random. And the other thing is, oftentimes those chapter numbers are just in the wrong place. Whoever put them in there, a guy named Stephen Langdon from England in the 13th century, he wasn't always paying attention to the literature. So the very first chapter break in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, fail, It's in the wrong place, right? I mean, the opening creation story goes four verses into Genesis chapter 2. So he missed it by a few lines. But I'm like, really? Like, couldn't you see that there's this story and then there's another one? Isaiah 53, famous passage. We just finished Holy Week, and that passage is oftentimes a part of that. Predicting the suffering of God's servant on behalf of his people. The suffering servant, you know, oracle in the prophet Isaiah. Actually starts back in Isaiah 52. So if you want to read what Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant, go back into Isaiah 52, about the middle, and read that plus Isaiah 53. So the chapter breaks are just not attuned, if you will, to the natural breaks within the Bible. So we're reading a good form of the Bible that encourages us to keep reading. We're feasting on whole books. We see that these books come together. It's not just that the Bible is a library, but the books actually come together to tell a story. And we talked about that story. We talked about the six acts of the biblical drama. God creates a temple where he wants to live with his people. It's the good creation. And then on the seventh day, he rests, which in the ancient Near East was something that a deity always did within his temple. So, So God, when he created the world, he wasn't just creating a home for us. He was creating a new place that he himself wanted to live in with us. It's a a phenomenal reality to see what the creation means in the original setting. And then human beings come as God's image bearers and they take the whole thing down. Because as the pinnacle of creation, as God's image bearers meant to rule the world, when they go wrong, the whole creation gets pulled down. That's why in the curse that comes afterwards, the ground itself is cursed because the humans have failed, because they are made out of the ground and they are the leaders of the new world that God has created. So the whole world is bound up with what happens to the humans. So now, early in the story, God's whole brand new thing, his intention in creation has gone south. 
What's he going to do about it? Act 3. He calls Abraham and tells him, through you, Abraham, and your family, I am going to bless all the peoples on earth. So this is the biggest part of the Bible, is the, the part having to do with Abraham's family. Why is it there? Is it just random that God decides to, you, to work with this one group of people? No. His intention in the overall story is he's going to use Israel, Abraham and his descendants, as the means by which he will set the whole story straight again. All peoples, all of humanity, will find their healing and blessing in what happens to Abraham and his family. And as we'll see, when, when people get restored, when humanity gets, gets renewed and healed and blessed, then the whole creation will follow them once again, and the creation will lose the curse that's been put on it, and it will be made new. So Act 3, huge, the story of Israel. Then Act 4, the story of Jesus. Jesus comes as this surprising figure because he, he comes as God incarnate, but he's also very important as a human figure. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the true Israelite. So the whole story comes down to Jesus. What is Jesus going to do? Because he represents the whole Israel part of the story. He represents the whole humanity part of the story. Paul will call him a second Adam, a new Adam. He, he's, re, he's a redo for the human race. So Jesus, made out of the stuff of the earth, he's, he, the, whole, the fate of the whole creation depends on him. So it all comes down to one person, one man, Jesus. When Jesus gets it right, it's very interesting how Jesus has a temptation story, just like Israel had a temptation story in the wilderness. Just like Adam and Eve had a temptation story in the garden. Jesus is the first one to get it right. So Jesus turns things around. He's a turning point within the story. The hinge of Israel's story turns on Jesus. Humanity's story turns on how Israel's story goes. The creation story hinges on how humanity's story goes. By, by, by getting it right... The, the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly his death and resurrection, the entire story of the Bible gets turned right. So Abraham's family gets renewed, and they take up their mission again. Your, your class is going to be on evangelism. The, the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts are explicitly portrayed as taking up the mission of Israel to bring blessing of God back to the world. Paul quotes that passage about why is he going not just to synagogues, but to philosophers in Athens and, and to people out in the marketplace. Because it's Israel's calling to bring blessing to the whole world. When Abraham's family is renewed in Jesus, then the followers of Jesus take up that calling to be a light to the world. And then Paul has this fascinating passage. When all of humanity is restored, he says, right in the middle of the book of Romans, at the climax of the teaching section, Paul says, when the children of God are revealed, right? when humans receive their new bodies at the resurrection, then the creation will be liberated from its bondage. Wow. Are you, are you freaking kidding me? This is amazing. This is bigger than the way we usually tell the Christian story. The Bible is an amazing story. It has this unlikely victory in Jesus. A victory, by the way, that looks entirely like failure to everybody around him, right? I mean, I think I use this example. 
If David goes out to fight Goliath and says, I am your representative, Israel. I am going to fight your enemy. And it's, it's mano a mano, one on one. The Philistines man against the Israelites man. And I'm representing God and his people. And then Goliath drives that giant spear right through David, cuts off his head and holds it up. That's what Jesus was asking his disciples to believe. That that's how he would win their victory. It doesn't make any sense. So we're surprised. Do, we think, do any of us think we would have seen Jesus' death as the victory? It was failure. That's how you knew you won or lost in the ancient world. It's like Moses like, like loses to Pharaoh, right? It's like David losing to Goliath. Jesus loses to the Romans. There were lots of would-be messiahs in that world. Anybody who claimed to be a messiah, historically, in their story, you knew God was with that person if they won, not if they lost. It's like Jesus went out alone to lose the battle on behalf of his people in the world. This is, cra- this is a surprise. And if we see the death of Jesus as anything other than like God's grand paradox, a huge surprise in the story, for which there are no, there are no earlier versions of the story going like this. It's why nobody got it, even his closest followers, are pretty sure at the end that they were mistaken, that he really wasn't the Messiah. It takes the resurrection. It takes God putting him back on the earth, standing up on the ground, eating breakfast on the beach with his followers, for them to say, wow, so the cross really was some kind of victory. What actually happened on the cross? And I think for 40 days, Jesus had to teach them How did the kingdom come when I went up on that cross and lost to the Romans? How was that actually a victory? What exactly did it defeat? Because it didn't defeat the Romans. And I think Jesus told them something like, what it defeated was the power behind the Romans. The forces of evil that are behind every enemy we've ever had. The forces of sin and death, which are the great enemy of God's entire creation. That's who I was fighting on the cross, not the Romans. The Romans are a symptom. They're incidental. The, the deeper enemy was the prince of darkness, and I defeated him by taking on the pain of all the world, the wrongdoing of all the world, and taking it upon myself and bearing that price. And God said, my father said, yes, I will raise you back up. And because of the resurrection, because Jesus was tried as a false messiah, remember, that was the charge. This is the king of the Jews in a mocking way. When God raised him up again, it was God saying, um, actually, he was the Messiah. He is the king. And he did fight Israel's battle like David. He won a different kind of battle, a deeper battle. And now i raising him back to life to vindicate his work. That's this amazing story we have. That's Act 4. Act 5, Now the the, the renewed family in Jesus goes out and shares this with the world. It's our task to embody this cross-shaped mission, this cruciform mission of Jesus. If we think we're going to win victories like David, we are sorely mistaken because the new model of kingship in God's kingdom is Jesus. And Jesus won by losing. So self-sacrificial servanthood is the way we win battles now as followers of Jesus. Not by, not by, you know, slicing off people's heads and fighting battles like David. That was an earlier model of kingship for that time in Israel. But as the story moves along, and one thing about taking the Bible seriously as a story, 
is that we really have to acknowledge that things move along. Not everything stays the same. The new family of God in Jesus doesn't have to follow the whole Torah. That was for an earlier stage. We don't win battles by physically fighting people anymore. That was an earlier stage of story. So story, reading the Bible as a narrative, means taking seriously where are we in the story and what's our, what's our mode of behavior based on the latest revelation, not the earliest revelation. So taking that seriously. And then finally, Acts 6. It's a homecoming. God makes his home back with us in his creation temple. At the end of Revelation, it says there's a new heaven and a new earth. It comes down out of heaven, and God makes his dwelling with us once again, the way he meant to at the beginning. And so God has won the great victory through his son. He's restored the creation. He's restored people. Abraham's family has shown itself to be a blessing to all people through their Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah. And that's, that's how this story goes. All right. Now, is there any t- if there's any time left, we'll talk about the last part, which is supposed to be this class. I should see how I'm doing. All right, we're all right. So, well, I should stop there. Let you guys think about that. See if you have any questions while I take a quick drink. Questions, comments? Yeah, Evan? Yeah. Right. That's right. And I think what, what, what we have to, as, as followers of Jesus, if we're serious about the way of Jesus, not just that Jesus died for my sins so I have a rescue card when I die, but I'm actually serious about following the way of Jesus now in this life, then I think we have to be serious about how, what did the mission of Jesus look like in his life? The restoration of fellowship in his earthly ministry. I mean, he restored people and he had fellowship with people who weren't supposed to be part of the fellowship in Jewish society. Um, He defeated evil, not by physically fighting its manifestations in this group or that group, but by, by going after deeper things. I mean, there's a power in forgiveness, right? On the cross, Jesus is forgiving those who are killing him. So the spiritual power of forgiveness the spiritual power of self-sacrifice, the spiritual power of not insisting on having our own way. I mean, Paul, that great song in Philippians where, where Paul writes to them, you should be imitators of Christ, who was in this unbelievable position with God in the heavens, and he gave it all up, even to the point of death, in order to win the victory for God. Paul says, be like that. So it is the Christian way. It's the, it's the way the Bible opens to us as followers of Jesus is to take this surprising road to victory. In a world, let's be honest, this is hard. I mean, every business you go to, if you're, if you're in any environment practically in the whole world, I mean, the, the way politics work in our organizations, right, everything, the way the world itself works, we're like anybody who takes this route of servanthood, they lose. They lose all the time. You have to assert your rights. I mean, this, this way of Jesus is counter to the way of the world, but the New Testament tells us this is how victories are actually won. This is how the world itself is changed, is when we follow the way of Jesus. And I think, you know, for, for too much, evangelicalism has been promoting only selling the death of Jesus as the forgiveness of my sins for some future salvation, 
We have not been talking about following the way of Jesus as the way to be his people in this world. So that's a huge thing, I think. So this is the story of the Bible. When we're regularly feasting on whole books, we understand the, the movement of this story. How does something like that speak to our lives today? What are we actually supposed to do with the Bible? And this is why we've adopted the language of the Bible as a drama. Now, why is drama different than story? Well, I mean, I can read the story of, say, Caesar Augustus, right? Near the time of the early church, a little before that. Um, I can read that story, and it's all history. It's, it's a story that's complete. I can read it from start to finish, and that's a story. The thing about a drama is, a drama is a particular kind of story that doesn't become what it's supposed to be until it's actually acted out. Right? You can read Shakespeare. I mean, I took a class in English, college, we read Shakespeare. But that's not really what Shakespeare intended. Shakespeare doesn't really become Shakespeare until it's enacted, performed. Somebody has to perform the play, the drama, for, for, for a drama, for something like Shakespeare's plays, to become what they were meant to be. Drama, you might say, activates story. A story can remain on the paper, and we can just read it and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting about David and Abraham and Moses and Jesus? That's very interesting. That's a good story. A drama says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't just a story to be read. This is a drama, and you are invited into it. And it doesn't become what it's meant to be until you take up your part in it. So part of that means we have to start thinking of the Bible as an unfinished story. It's an unfinished drama. Right? We have some hints of what the ending looks like, but the ending hasn't happened. We're in Act 5. We are the people of Jesus unleashed on the world to show the way of, of Jesus and his kingdom. But that, that part of the story is, it's been going on for a while. We're in the middle of it, and we don't know how long it's going to continue, but the end is still out in front of us. So the Bible is an unfinished story. So in that space of being unfinished is where we are called to be Bible people. What that means is we are meant to activate the Bible in our lives by taking up our roles in the drama and playing our rightful parts. The fact is, Everybody plays a role in this drama anyway. The question is, are you going to play your part well or poorly? Because the fact is, because this is God and God's world, everybody in the whole world is already in this drama. They're playing parts. Are they working for the prince of darkness or are they working for the kingdom of light? What are we, I mean, we're doing something. Every day we get up, we're in all kinds of mini dramas in our lives, Right? Some people make big things of little dramas, and we call them dramatic people. But the fact is, we're, we're, all, we're all in dramas, right? It's not just a pejorative term. The fact is, we have no choice but to live our lives as part of this. We're on God's stage. We're in his creation. We're up on that stage with other people, and we're going to do one thing or another. So what's it going to be? The way to think about the Bible is, the Bible tells me what is the story so far that's gone before me, 
what has God done to bring this drama to its rightful place? And how can I live in that drama so that I'm an ally of God and his kingdom rather than being something that's blocking God and his kingdom, stopping that kingdom of light from coming to expression in his world? But one way or another, on any given day, we're going to do one. We're, we're going to either be, be partnering with God to bring his light into the world, blessing and healing for the nations, or we're going to be a part of blocking that in all the decisions we make. Now, here's the thing people want the Bible to be the script for their part in the drama. They, they wish that they could just look up the right answer all the time and just be told exactly what to do. Right? Like you were reading Shakespeare or something. But this is the mistake. The Bible was never meant to be that kind of book. It's interesting that the Bible only gets written after its, its players have played their part. The early church, they're confronted with a, a situation. Gentiles are coming in. They're believing in the Jewish Messiah and they're part of the community. What are they supposed to do with these people? They don't follow Torah. Are they supposed to follow Torah? It's always been the case that God's people followed God's law. We thought it was forever. Do we, do we make them? God intervenes in Peter's life. Gives him a vision that says, guess what? Things are changing. That Torah was for you and your people, but now that the boundaries are being expanded, Torah doesn't have the same role in the sorting. They have a gathering. They didn't get to look up in the script what they were supposed to do. They had no script to follow for that day. So they pray, they gather together, they share their thinking. They're players in a drama, and, the, and the, the drama is real. The decisions have real implications in the real world for these new Gentile followers. How, what are they supposed to do? What does God's Spirit want for these new people in the community? And they figure it out. Now, the earlier part of the story certainly has implications for that decision, but it's not a script. If my boss comes in, Monday morning, and does something that makes me absolutely furious. What am, how, how, is, it, is it justified? Is it just my personal problem? Or is he really doing something wrong? I mean, what I want is a script that I could follow. It would be so much easier in life if we didn't have to make these decisions, right? If I could just look up the answer and have somebody tell me, say these exact words. Like, do this with your boss and everything will be great. That's, that's the way out of this. Instead, I have to do what? What do we all have to do with our lives every single moment? Improvise. I know this sounds probably counterintuitive, but I think the way to make the Bible active in our lives is improvisation. We have to take the trajectory of the Bible and all the stuff that's gone before, especially the stuff about Jesus and what Jesus did to that story. And we have to say, how do I bring the trajectory of that story to birth in my time on the stage, in our time on the stage? How as a community at New Life Downtown do we say the story of Jesus is going to continue right here in downtown Colorado Springs because we are gospel players. We are people who are improvising the gospel in our time. And by the way, improvisation is not just doing whatever you want and making stuff up. Real improvisation, if you've seen it in both the theater or in music, it's, it's closely tied to what has gone before. You have to know in music what kind of rhythm has been established. What's the key? You don't just do something random and discordant. You do something that's fresh, 
and it's new, and it's not scripted, but it has to be in keeping. It has to fit with what's gone before. Same thing in the improv in the theater. People, if you've seen improv done, and, and uh, you know, it's comedy typically, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, people are, are listening carefully to what's gone before, and they're doing something fresh, and that's, nobody told them, like, well, when he says this, you say this. You have to come up with it on the spot, but you have to listen closely to what's gone before. You're not just doing it randomly. So improvisation includes the idea of listening so, so closely to what's gone before. That's our stance toward the Bible. So we're listening to the Bible so closely that we know where the story of the Bible is going through Christ so that we can play our parts well. Now there's a little bit about improvisation that I think is especially helpful as we think about living the Christian life and having the Bible come to bear on it. And it's, this, it's these four steps that really make improvisation work. Any improvisation is based on these four things. First of all, there are things called offers. Right? Anybody in an improv will use the theater setting who says something or even makes a facial expression who does something, that's an offer to the rest of the group and it sets a story direction. If I come into a meeting and I sit down, don't talk to anybody and cross my arms, that's an offer. It's telling the rest of the group, this is, the, this is how he's going to be in this meeting, right? Versus if I come in and I make a different offer, if I send different signals, verbally or non-verbally, then I set, a, I set a proposed direction for the story. You know, and, and the rest of the actors in the improv are, have to decide how are they going to react to that. If they get the signals, all right, he wants this to be a conflict meeting. He, he's upset about something, he's distant, he's cutting himself off, he wants to fight or whatever. Then the rest of the actors have to decide what am I going to do with that offer? That's the initial offer. This is the way life is. Every interaction we have with somebody is an offer. It's saying this interaction, this story can go this direction. We have two choices with regards to offers. We can accept them. To accept an offer is to say, yeah, I like that story direction. Let's go with it. And I'll add this further part to it. Right? This is what they do in, in comedy improv. They say somebody sets a direction. They set some crazy scenario. Some, the next person to speak has to decide, okay, let's, we'll go with that storyline and, and we'll, we'll, I'll add this interesting new development to it. And then that's how the thing gets launched. Or the other option is, and this is the third thing that, that can be done in improv, is we block. This is rarely done. You're never supposed to do it in improv in a comedy theater because basically it shuts a person down and says, that's such a horrible story direction, we're not even going to listen to that. We're going to start something entirely new. That's how horrible it is. So blocking is an extreme action. It says, there's not even anything here for me to work with. When you cut people off in your life, you say, your proposals, your offers in my life are so bad, I don't even want anything to do with you anymore. That's a block. That's a severe action. Accepting means there's enough here for me to work with, I will work with it, and I might need to adjust things a little bit, but I'm going to go with it. So those are the way stories work. Now, it's interesting in the Bible. Think about the Bible as God's drama. Early in the story, God starts using blocks because he's so disgusted with what the human actors are doing. What is the flood story but God's block on the way humans are playing the drama in their life 
He's saying no to it in an absolute way. All I see when I look on the earth is violence and hatred and murder. And so I am going to flood the stage and wash you off of my stage of creation and, and start over with somebody new. Because your offers, humanity, are so bad, I can't stand to work with them. It's a block. Moses is leading the people out of the wilderness. Had these fantastic experiences, liberation, food. They get the law. Moses comes down and the people are failing immediately. I mean, they've just been liberated as God's people. He's bringing them to the promised land. Immediately they fail to play their parts well. They're in the drama and God says, these people are disgusting. He's having a conversation with Moses. He says, you know what, Moses? I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to start over with you and your family. It's like what he did in the flood. God is threatening to block. Because he's like, I want actors in this story who will work with me. Because I'm trying to reclaim the whole world. Moses talks God down. He says, no, 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 don't do that. What will people say about you if you do that? Your, your name is, your reputation is on the line. You're the one who brought them. If you just, he'll, they'll say, you just brought them out of Egypt so you could destroy them in the desert. What kind of God is that? So God backs off and he continues to work with them. It's kind of a turning point in the story. From this point on, what God starts to do with bad human actors in the story, which, let's be honest, we all are at times, right? I mean, which of us says, oh, yeah, I've played my part most stellar every single day. It doesn't happen. But what does God do with us? He over-accepts. This is a new concept in improvisation that is a very interesting alternative to either blocking or accepting as is. The thing about accepting is, accepting just says, I'm going to go with what you've done, and, and it's good, and we're going to just go with it. Over-accepting, as an alternative to blocking, is God's answer when he gets an offer from people that is less than what he hoped for, instead of blocking it, he starts over-accepting. Over-accepting is accepting on the basis that I will take the bad that's what happened, I'll take the evil of what's happened, and somehow, supremely, by my sovereign oversight of this whole drama, I will weave it back into the story of redemption. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Sometimes, and this is, it's not that over-accepting completely replaces blocking. It's, it's the redemptive way of turning things. But if we're honest, there are times in our lives where we just have to say no to things. It's not that blocking goes away entirely. And sometimes we, we just say, no, that's just not good. That's not a good part of God's drama, and I just need to shut it down. That's okay. But we need to have a new option also in our repertoire of things we think about as we're playing our parts in God's drama. And that is we start doing what God did in over-accepting. Think about David's act of adultery and then murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. Total failure to play his part. He's the king of Israel. He's supposed to be the representative of the people, showing them what it means to be God's people. He, he represents them all, and he uses his power, misuses his power, in order to take advantage of a woman and kill her husband just because he wanted her. 
Like God, what did God do with Saul when he failed? He blocked Saul and his line from being king. With David, it's the son of David and Bathsheba who actually becomes the king through whom the Messiah will come. That's overaccepting. The supreme example of overaccepting. God sends his own son to the world to bring life to the world, to show them the way, to help Israel be the Israel that God always wanted, to announce forgiveness of sins, to bring the kingdom. He sent his servants, the prophets. Finally, he sent his son. They kill him. It's like, it's like this was God's biggest offer. And, and this was humanity's biggest block. God, we refuse your offer completely to the point that we will kill your son. But God turns that very rejection into the thing that saves the whole world. That's overaccepting. Taking something that is in itself wrong, evil. I was preaching at the, doing some teaching at the Bikers Church a while back. And these people have like unbelievable stories to me. And when I talked about this overaccepting idea, I thought, I don't know what these guys are going to think of it. They might just take me and throw me out. I don't know what they'll do. But they were like, no, this is it. They had all these stories of just like tragedy in their childhoods, the things that they've experienced before they became a believer and got into this Christian motorcycle club. They were experiencing horrific things, like really bad. I mean, it's easy to kind of like, you know, turn motorcycle riders into, you know, it's kind of a cool subgroup and all this. There's, there's some terrible things that happen in the lives of those people. And they said, the fact that God can take my tragedy and weave that back into a story of redemption that actually helps other people, that is unbelievable. That's the way you play a drama. So what if we started looking for that? Instead of saying, all the people in my life I don't like, I don't like what they're saying, I don't like what they're doing, what if we took the stance of over-accepting? This is what the Bible reveals us as the supreme way in which the drama is played well, is if we start over-accepting the failures of the people around us, just like God over-accepts our failures, and we find a way. It takes creativity. It means more than looking up a Bible verse and getting the right answer. What we're doing is we're working with the whole story and say, I, God, you made us to be significant beings. We are made in your image. The, we are the people that God wanted to, to play this role in his creation, not anybody else, not the plants, not the animals. We are the only ones who can do this. We are significant people who are meant to bring creativity to our spirituality. Find a way to turn the wrongdoing in our life and weave it back into the story of a good creation finding its redemption. That's over-accepting, and that's the way we use the Bible. So I'm running out of time, so I want to... I want to just say a few more things about the drama that, that give us some clues about specifically how the Bible works in this. Number one, if all I am doing is snacking on the Bible, if all I know is a few favorite Bible verses, I do not have a good chance of playing my part well. For us to take the whole story of the Bible, coming to its conclusion, its right climax in the work of Jesus, if I'm really going to play a part in that story, I had better know that story. We need to be marinating in the scriptures. We need to be soaked in it, like all the time. Because if, if I think I can play my part in this drama, 
this unfinished story of salvation that God has put us into, and we're on his stage, we're the people for this scene in God's story, I have to know the Bible so well that it's kind of like it's intuitive for me. Like the themes of the Bible are part of something that are deep within me. God oftentimes chooses the, the outsider, the, the one that's least expected. He doesn't choose the firstborn. He chooses David, who's the last child, the one overlooked. He chooses people who are like Paul writes to the Corinthians. Not many of you were, were big people. You were outsiders. You were outcasts. You were the ones that nobody wanted. But you were the ones who accepted the gospel. So we know this theme in the Bible. So we look for ways. Who are, who are the outsiders that everybody's forgetting that we can welcome? That's one of the themes. We start learning all these themes in God's story. The power of forgiveness to change things at a deep, deep level. We, we, we take that in because we're, we see it happening in the story of the Bible. So we start looking for ways to live that story in our own life. And we do that. I mean, there are more themes like that in the Bible than I have time to mention. But this is what we start doing. We start, we start like just eating the Bible whole so that we can live the Bible whole. And it's, it's, I'm telling you, it's more than looking up a little answer here or there. If we're skimming the surface of the Bible, we don't have a chance of playing our parts to the fullness that God wants from us. So we've got to change our Bible habits for this to have a chance to happen. And we have to stop thinking it's, it's an answer book in the way that God wants me to suspend my own mind and creativity. And he just wants to tell me like I'm a robot what to do. I think God's offended when we look for those kind of answers. He's like, I created you in my image. Hello? I put you in charge of the world. I gave it to you as the ones who are meant to rule over the world. You shape the world more than any other creature. And you want me to just tell you what to do in every... I mean, what if you had a boss? You ever had a micromanaging boss who tells you like every single thing, how, what to do and how to do it? It's oppressive. God, God created us as these like unbelievable beings. We can work together in community. We can find new solutions to things. We can figure things out. We need to bring all that to bear in our deep Bible reading. And he gave us his spirit. And he gave us spiritual directors, drama directors like Evan and Glenn and the rest of the staff here to help guide us. Because every drama group, every group of players in a drama need that spiritual direction. And he gave us forgiveness when we screw up our lines or fail. So on any given act of the play, on any given day, he doesn't say, I'm just this, I've had it with you. you. You have failed me one too many times. You're gone. He never does that. He, he welcomes us back up and says, let's get it better today. And he gives us people. He gives, we're not, the other thing is we're not doing monologues up on the stage. We're, we're in community in this gospel drama. So we read the Bible. We, we're made in God's image. We have his spirit. We have a community. We have leaders. We have forgiveness. We have everything we need to live the drama of the Bible in a way that is spectacular in front of the community of Colorado Springs. I mean, they just look at this. They should look at Christian community and say, that's stunning what they're doing. This is a new way to be human. Because that's what God is trying to bring into the world, is a new way to be human. Different than the model that they're thinking and see about everywhere else they look. The Bible is at the heart of this. So in closing, let me just say, my prayer for New Life Downtown is that all these gifts that God has given us will come to be deeply rooted here, that you will be, you will be Bible people in a deep sense, 
Not in a superficial sense. That you will, you will really know your scriptures. You will know the story. You will know that you are called to take up your role in this drama. And, and that you will pass the torch on to the next people in the drama. And that you will play your parts well. Fittingly. You know what this does for the Christian life? For New Life Downtown? It turns the Christian life not into a mechanical thing about just obedience and I just do these things. It turns the Christian life into a work of art. Because drama is one of the fine arts. So what it means is, is that you should think of your life as a work of art that you give back to the creator of all beauty. Um, I just think that's a great way to think about life. And to think about the Bible is that it's a script of a drama that's gone before inviting us in and telling us to be all that God made us to be as creative, significant human beings and play your part well on this you know, on behalf of the extension of love and forgiveness and restoration and healing and blessing in the world. That's the Bible that God gave us. That's what he wants us to do with it. And I wish you the best in your journey. So thank you. I think we're basically done, but some questions? Yeah. Yeah, the thing about rejecting is, is that, you know, I mean, in the, in the way it works in the drama, is it's, it's a rejection not just of, a, of an offer for an action or a storyline. It always ends up being a rejection of the person. I mean, the flood, like, wiped people out. Um, God was threatening to destroy Israel in the desert. So it was a rejection of their proposal for the way the story should go, but it's also, it carries with it a rejection of the people, which is why it's rarely a good good strategy for, for interacting with the world around us. Because our rejection of their storyline, and, and let's, let's be honest, there are many things in the storyline offered us in the world that we should say no to. That, that is not a good storyline, and we are not in support of that. We have to find ways to overaccept that as our primary response, I would say, because we don't want to communicate rejection of those people. We don't want to block them from being part of the community or being part of life in God's world. We want to over-accept. That means accept. By accept, it doesn't mean we say, yeah, that's an okay storyline. It means I will continue to work with you and I will work to weave our, our interaction together back into something that's worthy of the name redemption and restoration. That's what we're trying to do. So I think over-accepting. I mean, and let's, there are times when you just say, I don't see any other way out of this other than to block it. So that option isn't completely off the table, but it needs to be mostly off the table because over-accepting is the way God has shown he's actually working in the story. And it's interesting to me that early on he was tempted to block, and he did block, but you don't see blocks as the story moves along. He moves toward over-accepting, which is a, an amazing development in that story of God in the world, I think. Any other 
Questions? Okay, I should let you go. Thanks.